guitarist who was named after me, me who has less than zero musical talent, died of a drug overdose in a mental health clinic at age 22. Suicide? It would not have been the first time he tried. Medication mistake by a nurse? Autopsy report inconclusive. Lawsuit pending. At least two pharmaceutical companies who made antidepressants prescribed for him, Wyeth and GlaxoSmithKline, had lied about data suggesting links between their drugs and suicide in teenagers. Lawsuits pending. Not that legal maneuvers or money can bring James back to us or retroactively soothe all the pain he was in. Executing by hand the persons who manipulated the data and made the decisions to keep pushing those antidepressants wouldn't accomplish that either, though I'd still love to do it. In any event, I sure miss my beautiful son. I read and heard people say that losing your child is the worst thing you can ever experience, and I can't disagree. I'd also assumed it would kill me. At this stage, I realized that all these events were horrific, but not that unusual, and certainly more are to come. More? All of us will surrender our health, our standing, our marbles, our self, soon enough. Or so I've been given to understand. Yet the most forceful and eloquent part of my soul still insists I will be the exception. I'm still alive, after all. Mind you, I do understand the basic biological facts, and I do not believe in the soul. I was raised Roman Catholic, of course, but have spent the last forty years as a secular humanist. Folks like me get branded unbelievers, atheists, heretics, educrats, ethical relativists, Jews, brights, effete blue state feminists, egg-headed, patched, tweed, and rimless bifocals wearing faggots, French, and much worse. More affectionate terms include freethinker, agnostic, lapsed Catholic, progressive, existentialist, reader of novels, queer, beatnik, and honorary Jew. I'm not sure which label fits best, but I do have a great deal of faith that our bodies, our brainwaves and actions, commerce and science and art, words and children, are pretty much all there is to us. Religion evolved to help us cope with poverty, imprisonment, fear of death, and other bad things, and that's fine. But is some white-bearded guy named Jehovah or Allah Dumare, God or Allah, really out there? In here? On a throne up in heaven, above and to the left of cloud nine? Or is he perpetually verging a gazillionth of a nanometer beyond the periphery of a cosmos expanding at 299,792,458 meters per second, frantically tap-dancing along the edge of this most naked of all singularities? Was his word his final solution on eros, ethics, weaponry, territorial boundaries, contraception, evolution, and somatic cell nuclear transfer inked onto crinkly multilingual papyrus manuscripts a millennium or two ago? My answer to all these is, please. I also have faith that there ain't no infernal conflagration after death, unless you want to count the forging of my cremains, no purgatorial scorching of my incorporeal personhood, no seventy-two black-eyed virgins or eighteen choirs of nineteen-year-old lingerie modeling Brazilo's Scandinavian cherubim waiting on me up in paradise. Nor will I be reincarnated as a wild but eventually triple-crown-winning black stallion, a granite-jawed southpaw with a hundred-and-one-mile-per-hour cutter I can paint the black of the plate with, or the twenty-third century's Abraham Lincoln let alone its most potent singer-songwriter-guitarist. Even my hero, Dante Alighieri's sizzling twelve-year-old girlfriend, Beatrice Portinari, won't really be spinning around no Empyrean in perfect equilibrium with him. 
Sorry, D. Because once my blipping EEG line goes flat, it's going to be all she wrote. In the meantime, my life will be sweet in a number of aspects, a boot in the testicles other times. Sooner or later, a Hummer will squash me like Wiley Coyote. Either that or my heart and maybe another vital organ or two will break down and I'll suffer, piss and moan, not a little, then purchase the farm. I've already made the down payment. As far as the suffering goes, how soon it starts, how long it drags out, I used to be confident that what's called Western medicine was riding full speed, or almost that fast, to the rescue. I knew Western medicine consisted of millions of creative, altruistic, expensively educated women and men, many working in laboratories and hospitals and clinics well to the east and south, but sometimes the term made me picture a single Asian cowgirl in snowy white lab coat and Stetson, bandolier of specimen vials jangling against her modest cleavage as she clutches in one hand the reins of a galloping stallion, in the other a glass pipette, delicate enough to boink a healthy cell into the place of a sick one. In another daydream, she wields a titanium lasso, delicate enough to snare a 15-millimeter polyp three and a half feet up my rectum, her motto tattooed in racy arabesque just below either her navel or the base of her spine. Time to cowgirl up. Take your medicine. Not that I expected Western medicine to let me live forever. Just an extra decade or so, with a little more spring in my step. What I really, really wanted, daydreams aside was for people like my daughter Bridget, who has suffered from juvenile diabetes for 22 years, to get a fair shot at their biblical three-score and ten. But in August 2001, as Muhammad Atta and Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed finalized their plans, our Bible-toting president, squinting out from his sun-blasted spread down in Crawford, took it upon himself to forbid further use of embryonic stem cells in the effort to cure diabetes, Parkinson's, cancer, MS, and a dozen other vicious diseases. Pretending to split the difference between ultra-conservative Christians and the rest of us, the president's compromise effectively amounted to a ban on embryonic stem cell research. He said that more than 60 genetically diverse stem cell lines already exist, and that the NIH would be permitted to fund research on these existing lines only. Less than a dozen of them would ever be made available to scientists, most of them genetically limited to people who tend to use in vitro clinics. The white, the infertile, the wealthy. Not that there's anything innately wrong with these categories, but researchers will need thousands of lines, perhaps even one for every patient, to provide genetic matches for the entire population. Bush claimed to have given biomedical research a great deal of thought, prayer, and considerable reflection. But in one fell swoop, he damned the flow of a decade of medical research robustly encouraged by President Clinton and a host of Nobel laureates and teaching hospitals. He had stripped my infinitely resourceful cowgirl of her most promising protocol, forcing her to ride side-saddle on a stubborn Texas mule better equipped to trudge across deserts and oil fields than gallop off into the future. And I couldn't allow that to stand. If this pious, vote-mongering embarrassment didn't change his position real soon, I might have to do something rash. In the meantime, in April 2002, a stitch along the left side of my abdomen suddenly graduated into an aching throb. I'd turned 51 in late March and was just beginning to get my feet underneath me again after James's death. Life after 9-11 was quite a bit easier to cope with, for me, by comparison. I had tenure as a lit and writing professor, my second marriage was flourishing, and my book about poker was scheduled to be published the following March. 
While making final revisions to the book and teaching my literature and science of poker class, I felt pretty good about things, as long as you didn't count the abscess in my soul where my son lived. But within a couple of days the thorn in my side, as I thought of it, had me walking hunched over like a little old man with bad knees and end-stage cirrhosis, not exactly the image I like to project to the world. I much prefer to swagger from success to success like a book-learnt but still macho cowboy. Bow-legged, big-cocked, in saddle-worn denim, denim not broken in or sandblasted ahead of time by underpaid foreigners. As the throbbing intensified, I gulped down more Advil and prayed, I mean, worried. I'd been taking Zocor, which helped lower my elevated bad cholesterol, for almost two years, this while neglecting to get my liver function tested. Lynn Martin, my primary care physician, had told me to have it checked after three months on the statin because the possible side effects included nephritis and liver damage, but I somehow forgot. I knew I'd been drinking too much and dosing myself far too liberally with Advil for headaches and hangovers, so my self-diagnosis was liver failure, though the phrase I used with my wife Jennifer was, some liver thing. Scared by the fatal possibilities, but also of hearing them confirmed by Dr. Martin, I finally, at Jennifer's insistence, made an appointment at our HMO's lab to have my liver enzymes tested. I also stopped drinking, not unheroically, I decided, and, in spite of the crippling pain, as I phrased it to myself, stopped taking Advil, even though I understood the damage was already done. Oh, and another thing, Braino, Jennifer said after kissing me, wishing me luck and dropping me off at the lab. Your liver's on your right side, not on your left. Dr. Martin was booked or on vacation, and the first appointment I could get was with her partner, Dennis Hughes.